By repeated observations, I have found in December that two ounces of quicksilver, openly exposed, have frozen hard in 15 minutes. It may be cut with a knife, like lead, wrote John Ledyard, of the grueling winter. Quote, Strong cognac brandy coagulated. A thermometer filled with rectified spirits of wine indicated 39.5 degrees on Rayamir scale. Captain Billings had on the borders of the frozen ocean the winter before last, 43 degrees and three-fourths by the same thermometer. End quote. The full extent of Billings and Ledyard's ketchup cannot be known, though we know that it brought a spark back to Ledyard's journaling. Perhaps this came from seeing a friend deep in Siberia, but likely he'd found the ship that he was looking for to take him to North America. In late December, Martin Sauer writes about the guns, medicine, clothing, etc. Quote, Captain Billings resolved to go himself to Irkutsk to see these articles, forwarded down the Lena so soon as the river should open in the spring. Accordingly, on the 29th of December, we set out. Mr. Ledyard, Roebuck, Lehman, his first mate, and I accompanied him. The Russian secretary and several necessary hands were ordered to follow with all possible speed. They had arrived by mid-January, up the river in which Ledyard had traversed only a few months before. In these severe frosts, the air is condensed like a thick fog, Ledyard wrote of that winter, almost echoing the foul weather that the pair had already traversed together. Quote, the atmosphere itself is frozen. Respiration is fatiguing. All exercise must be as moderate as possible. One's confidence is in his fur dress, end quote. In a letter home, before going to Africa, he would send home his fur dress, a cloak made in London, no doubt his lifeline down the Lena, both ways. Quote, I traveled on foot with it from Denmark, Sweden, Lapland, Finland, and Lord knows where. I have slept in it, eaten it, drank in it, fought in it, negotiated in it. Through every scene, it has been my constant and hearty servant, from my departure till my return to London. And now to give it an asylum, for I have none. I send it to you. Lay it up. As soon as I can, I will call and lay myself up with it. End quote. Welcome to Expeditions, a podcast around Lewis and Clark. We explore the history and historiography of the expedition one day at a time. We are everywhere at Expeditions Pod. That's social media, Patreon if you want to support the show, as well as our website. You are currently in Mile Marker 2, Episode Northwest Passages. That sentiment, put aside my things for I'll soon be home, is as old as time. But part of this age of Cook, if you will, was an attempt to, if not collapse the world, as something like air travel or the internet has done today, but to know the world, to map and maintain routes for predictable passage. What one does along these routes is another thing. Of course, Columbus was looking for Asia when he landed in Hispaniola, so the Northwest Passage, in quotes, was always shorthand for a way through North America, whose size wouldn't really be known for some time. See Mackenzie, see Lewis and Clark. As we touched on yesterday, the European powers shifted into settlement in their own ways as the passage remained obscure, even, pa- even post-Lewis and Clark. McClure would confirm passage in 1850, while the SS Manhattan made the first commercial trip through McClure's route in 1969. Though, for now, it's still impractical to travel, though climate change is hastening an ice-free passage that you listening may see in your lifetime. Thank you.
Northwest Passage is thus less mythical today. Cook wouldn't be the first to effectively burst the myth, but with him, for the first time, it really started to sink in before dying harshly on the Lehigh Pass with Meriwether Lewis. But like Russia and Spain, Britain and France and Denmark, Norway, and later the United States were and still are to this day out here for markets, for settlements, for land claims, for influence. We touched on John Cabot yesterday, but his son, Sebastian, followed in his footsteps in 1508, setting off northern exploration for the mythical Northwest Passage. Out west, we met Ulloa in Monterey. He was searching for the also-mythical Strait de Vanian that had enveloped Juan de Fuca, Francis Drake, and countless cartographers after being postulated by Marco Polo. The strait would be creatively applied whenever it best pleased their corporate slash monarchical or both benefactors. In 1588, Lorenzo Ferrer Maldonado claimed to have discovered the Northwest Passage that would take Spain straight through the Americas to the Philippines. Brendan Resnick writes, quote, Viewed in context, his report can be read as a detailed shortlist of the King of Spain's most desired discoveries. A harbor large enough to anchor 500 ships, adjacent rivers deep enough for the largest ocean-going vessels, ideal town sites in the surrounding environs, lush arboreal tracks to supply ample lumber, mountains conveniently leveled off and ready for agriculture, and abundant animal life. End quote. Out in the Arctic, where we had left Ledyard Billings and La Perouse, in 1554, Hugh Willoughby also dealt with terrible whirlwinds off of the Norway coast and perished around the Via Zemblia, jutting out from the Arctic. Dutchman Wilhelm Barents would follow, also perishing, in Novaya Zemblia, although he would get a sea named after him. Back east, Martin Frobisher, in the footsteps of Humphrey Gilbert, thought that he had found the Passage to Cathay, that is China, in 1576 at the corner of today's Baffin Island in eastern Canada. John Davis thought he had found the passage in 1585, but it was just Cumberland Sound off the Labrador Sea. A half-century later, after Cartier and Champlain explored the St. Lawrence for France, Luke Fox and Thomas James circumnavigated Hudson Bay, poking through straits and channels for a passage beyond. Henry Hudson coasted Greenland and sailed into the strait and the bay that would be named after him, before disappearing in 1611, after a mutiny, with Thomas Button looking for him to the Nelson River over the next year, and Robert Bylot two years after that. Over the course of 20 years at the start of the 17th century, Etienne Brule completed a circuit from the Ottawa River to Lake Ontario to Niagara to the Susquehanna into the Chesapeake Bay. La Salle, venturing into the upper Great Lakes in the late 1670s, followed two decades later by Henry Kelsey through the Canadian prairies to the headwaters of the Saskatchewan and the Assiniboine capped western momentum until Samuel Hearn, future prisoner of La Perouse, if we recall, traveled from Hudson Bay to the Coppermine River, which empties into an arm of the Arctic Ocean, in 1772, confirming there was no strait, double-checked and expanded upon by Alexander Mackenzie in 1789, and then to the Pacific in 1793. Though, as Mackenzie painted on a rock at the close of his famous transcontinental voyage, he had traveled by land. Fifteen years prior, on Cook's itinerary was to explore a passage in the very northwest, but only above 65 degrees, in the same latitude as Davis's Strait and Fox's Basin. 
Cook would travel from Nootka Sound, itself part of the Strait de Juan de Fuca, which leads into the Salish Sea, the Puget Sound, and forms the U.S.-Canada border. Past Sitka, where Hesita and Bogodai Quadra search for Russians at 59 degrees in 1775. Past Latua Bay, where we stopped with La Perouse, and Yakutak Bay, where Alessandro Malaspina looked for a passage in 1791, into an inlet still bearing his name, leading us to today's anchorage, before being repelled, per usual, by icebergs. As David Nicandria writes, quote, Alaska's icy cape at 70 degrees north on the Arctic Ocean side of the Bering Strait, Cook's northernmost reach before becoming stymied by ice, effectively marked the end of his and Europe's quest for the original saltwater version of the Northwest Passage. End quote. Just as La Perouse had, there's no doubt that Ledyard and Billings would have given it another look, even though Ledyard had told Ezra Stiles in 1784 that he didn't quite believe in the passage anymore. However, as we know, it wouldn't be until George Vancouver's 1791 through 95 trips around the Pacific that coincided with Robert Gray's piloting of his ship, the Columbia, that a mighty river, which had been missed for decades, assumed for dubious reasons to not have been possible at such low altitudes, was finally, quote-unquote, discovered. In the post-Cook world, with other countries taking off across the globe, the lessons of the earlier age of exploration started to take hold. George Vancouver said, quote, The ardor of the present age is to discover and delineate the true geography of the Earth. End quote. Outside of discovery, a major impetus of the Vancouver exploration was settlement in the Pacific Northwest, based specifically upon the success of Botany Bay. Located south of downtown Sydney's more famous harbor, though if you were to fly into the city, you're likely to land at Sydney Airport, runways jutting out into the bay. As we recall, La Perouse was given instructions to sail for Australia, explored by Cook's second voyage in 1770, and investigate British plans to settle the area, famously with a penal colony. A month and a half after they left Kamchatka, they crossed the equator and headed for Samoa, needing food and water. This would be the second major tragedy for La Perouse, as his friend and the commander of the Astrolabe was killed along with 11 others, and wounding of 20. La Perouse wrote of his plans of revenge, but was persuaded to sail on, past Tonga, to Norfolk Island, due east to Australia. On January 24, they headed west and arrived at Great South Land, as Cook had called it, Australia. <laughs> 